I'm Tom Chamberlain, president of the Oregon AFL-CIO. On this month's episode of The Voice of Oregon Workers, we sit down with Jeff Anderson, the Secretary Treasurer of the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 555. This local union grabbed national headlines in 2017 for fighting to pass a groundbreaking Fair Work Week law, the first of its kind in the country. UFCW Local 555 is a diverse union representing many different types of workers from pharmacists to fish packers. We're excited to see what UFCW Local 555 is planning and how they'll continue to make history by passing laws that lift workers up and advance workers' rights. Welcome to our first episode of 2019 of The Voice of Oregon's Workers. And before we get going, I wanted to use a point of personal privilege to thank our listeners for your support on this journey. We launched this podcast in April of 2018 as an experiment, a project aimed at using a different medium to reach trade unionists and progressives and to highlight the people and the organizations on the front lines of the fight for social and economic justice. This month, we bring you the 10th episode in this experiment, and we've been overwhelmed by the positive feedback and encouragement we've had from listeners. As always, if you like what you've been hearing and want to hear more, please share with friends, family, and like-minded Oregonians. Now, for our dedicated listeners, you'll know that last month we sat down with Tom Chamberlain, president of the Oregon AFL-CIO, to wrap up 2018 with a discussion about the challenges workers face throughout the year but also the excitement, the solidarity, and the strength shown with collective action on the rise across the country and huge wins for working people at the ballot box in 2018. Now, 2019 brings brings us the much-anticipated Oregon legislative session. And like we all know, after big wins for working people in the labor movement in November, expectations are really high here in Oregon for lawmakers with pro-worker, pro-union supermajorities in both the Senate and the House, which is the first time that's happened in a decade. These strong wins at the ballot box should lead to major progress on key issues for working Oregonians. And Oregon unions are really excited to work in partnership with legislative leadership and the governor to accomplish some big things. And we're really excited to look forward to the 2019 Oregon legislative session and what's in store to really move the ball forward on our efforts to create an economy that works for everyone and not just the wealthy and well-connected. And we are really lucky to be joined this month by Jeff Anderson, Secretary-Treasurer of UFCW Local 555, Oregon's statewide union representing over 25,000 workers in grocery and retail, manufacturing and processing plants, healthcare facilities, and that's just to name a few of the industries that they fight for workers in their industries. And Local 555 has been on the front line of the fight for workers' rights and fairness for decades and in recent years has achieved some incredibly historic wins for low-wage workers in Oregon. So on this month's episode, we'll dive into UFCW's legislative priorities for 2019. We'll discuss some of the other um, issues and priorities for workers coming into the Oregon legislature, and we'll talk some about the exciting things happening within Oregon's workers' movement. Welcome, Jeff. Glad to have you. You're welcome. Yeah. Excited to have you here. And, uh, you know, UFCW is just such a key part of the broader labor movement and the Oregon AFL-CIO, and uh, we're really excited to have you, and uh, especially with your depth of experience and, um, 
and leadership in the labor movement. I'd love to just hear a little bit about sort of your your role, length of service at UFCW, and just sort of, you know, uh, a little bit about yourself for listeners. Well, I'm a native Oregonian. My family came out uh, originally on the Oregon Trail. Uh, I come from a work, working family out of Dallas, Oregon, McMinnville, that area. And um, I can trace my union roots to my father and to my mother's work. My dad worked at a mill. Uh, he was active in his union. Uh, my mom was the head cook of a school, member of the Oregon School Employees, uh, OSEA. Um, and so I take my union roots, share values from my parents. I started my work career um, when I was 14, sorting pop bottles and beer bottles uh, in 1972 uh, because Oregon passed a law, the first in the nation, to put deposits on uh, beer and bottle containers. So my first job was that law being enacted, um, and it led me into a, a grocery career, if you would. Um, by 1976, I had transferred up to the big times, joined the union, uh, the, the retail clerks at that time, mm-hmm. uh, in Salem, Oregon. And, uh, by 1980, I was a shop steward. I was on the bargaining committee and I was asked to help lobby as a worker for a, a concept of having chiropractic medical coverage in the major medical, um, insurance that we take for granted today. Hmm. Uh, the AMA opposed it. Uh, they just didn't want those chiropractors. But we found that we have a lot of soft tissue injuries, repetitive motion, mm-hmm. and we found that to be a positive. Mm-hmm. So that kind of led me on my union career. And it's been uh, 43 years now in the union, 33 years on staff. Uh, I've been an officer, secretary, treasurer for the last uh, 10 years. And it's been quite a ride and quite a progressive march of values over that period of time mm-hmm. from where we came. That's really cool. I was just thinking when you were talking about your very first job, um, I was actually just sorting my cans into my green bag in my garage just last night. So, yeah, the, the <laughs> Thanks way, to Jeff Anderson. for. Well, you know, I looked at back when I was 14, making a dollar an hour, it was uh, big money. I could yeah. count how many cans of pop how many candy bars and how many comics I could buy based on my hours of work. So, nice. And that's got to be really cool to, to also, just when you were talking about the that early fight where you uh, took on a righteous issue that mattered your members, your fellow coworkers in chiropractic care, and then you took that to the legislature, you were a group of workers, you banded together, you took on the moneyed interests of the doctors and the healthcare industry, and you won, it sounds like. So that's, yeah, we, that's be we cool. prevailed over time. Nice. Nice. How long? How, just out of curiosity, how long did that fight take? Do you remember? Uh, that took a lot of years. Yeah. I was coming into the middle of that fight. Back then, there were three different type of chiropractic coverages or styles and techniques, mm-hmm. and they weren't always on all the same page. Yeah. Today, I think it's pretty accepted, and um, it's covered in most major medical plans. Nice, nice. Well, um, I appreciate that intro, Jeff. And uh, you know, to give listeners a bit more context about your organization. Um, I think your personal story is obviously a really telling one for a large segment of your members that you currently represent. But um, if you could talk a little bit more about the types of workers that UFCW represents. Again, I just gave a quick snapshot of some of the industries, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, uh, the bulk of our members come in the retail trade, specifically in the grocery food, um, meatpacking, uh, grocery stores, healthcare processing, 
chicken processing, fish pack processing, beef processing. We have law firms that are in our union. We have um, some 3,000 healthcare workers. But the bulk of our members work in the traditional grocery stores, Fred Meyers, Safeways, Albertsons, QFC, amongst uh, a number of independents. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, Very nice. And, you know, um, let's just take uh, maybe a couple different types of work that you just rattled off. So what is a, if you could tell, especially given your firsthand experience, could you tell us a little bit about what a day in the life of a retail worker means? What does that look like? I mean, I can imagine, I, I, I was actually a UFCW member when I was in college and I was a retail clerk at a, at a Kroger in the Midwest. And I was a, I was a, I was a, I was a checker. I was a retail clerk, but, um, but that's just a, I just had a, a short experience with that. I'd love to hear more maybe about the retail sector to start with. Well, in the grocery industry, it's the most competitive industry in the American economy. It works on one to two cents on the dollar net profit. Um, there's no other uh, part of our economy that has that thin of a margin. So it's a very competitive industry. Uh, to some extent, the retail stores are fairly non-profit. And you tell somebody that and they go, how can that be? Because most of the money today is made in the warehousing, purchasing, uh, and consolidation at uh, wholesale mm-hmm. uh, for these companies. But um, it is a very difficult when you're running on thin margins. Employers want to have all the flexibility they can. And what I've seen is an emergence from what was a full-time job for a lot of people in the 60s became more and more part-time to more and more casual labor. We'll call you. Uh, you won't have your schedule for next week. For um, You have three days' notice. Uh, and it created a lot of uh, problems. I mean, we find that we have a higher turnover uh, in the bottom of our membership uh, because a lot of people are taking these jobs temporarily, while there's about 40-45% of the grocery industry is a career path. Mm-hmm. And trying to negotiate benefits and wages when you have a, a competitive marketplace where there's a lot of non-union operators coming into a market puts downward pressure on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, and just from my recollection, just from those couple of years that I worked in the industry and just from what I've learned working with folks like you, Jeff, um, you know, uh, it's not just a young workforce. Yes, there's a predominantly there's a there's a young base of, of workers um, that maybe see this as a as a job on their way somewhere else or a temporary job or a side gig. But there's also a pretty stable crew uh, of the workforce and grocery in your industry that that do see it as a career path. Yeah, and the employers are finally figured out they don't want to have high turnover. That cost of uh, retaining, retraining uh, is pretty expensive. And uh, key positions, you need to have people that you can know they are going to be there. They're reliable. Mm-hmm. They're day in, day out. They show up at the different hours because we're not a traditional Monday through Friday 8 to 5 job. In fact, when I started in the industry, Wednesday and Thursday – were the busiest days in, in the grocery business. That was Tuesday or Tuesday, Wednesday. Tuesday was the end of the ad. Wednesday was the start of the new ad. Mm-hmm. And you had the biggest intensity of shopping on those days. Today, it's Saturday and Sunday because that traditional family working Monday through Friday, maybe one household, mm-hmm. is now two households, um, head of households have to work. 
Uh, and as a consequence, the sales have shifted to Saturday and Sunday. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the 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 um, the consumer side of the of the trends that you see in this economy and mm-hmm. what the uh, what that what that, what that means for the workers that are having to keep stores stocked, make sure that the stores run on time, yep. and that kind of thing. So um, we're going to come back a little bit later to the conversation around retail worker rights. But I I don't know if there's anything. So we were just talking before the interview. We're both wearing boots made by the members of UFCW at Danner here in Portland, which is Absolutely. pretty cool. I've got a Carhartt jacket made by UFCW members Absolutely upstairs as well. Um, but but I'm curious about. Um, you know, any of the other industries that you mentioned, whether it's food processing or maybe the Danner workers, I mean, is there uh, a day in the life of those types of workers, whether it's manufacturing or food processing? I don't know if I, – I, well, I'm really curious and I'm sure listeners might be too. In, in manufacturing food processing, uh, poultry is a good example. We used to have turkey plant uh, in Salem many years ago. It went out of business. But what you find is that there are huge, significant ergonomic issues – uh, you have a lot of varicose vein syndrome um, and repetitive motion injuries. And so, you know, as they tried to make their margins, employers run those lines a little faster than maybe they should. Mm-hmm. And so just aggressively working in a political environment to have safe standards. Mm-hmm. It's not just safe food for uh, safe for eating. It should also be a safe workplace. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it it's tough. People uh, work these jobs, and some of them, are, some of the work is not very uh, ingratiating. People would like to change, but uh, where you can get negotiated benefits and, and wages um, in a union compared to the non-union, you find that you have people that stay and they want to make a career path at some jobs, but they want it to be safe. Mm-hmm. And I just got to imagine, I mean, you and I have talked about this. We've worked together on these types of campaigns. But, uh, you know, just as, as challenging as manufacturing, food processing, some of these industries are to the working people that make the profits for these companies and these employers, as challenging as it is even in a union-represented facility, we can only imagine what it's like in these non-union facilities where there's no collective bargaining, there's no rights, uh, workers are told what to do rather than uh, a conversation and negotiation around what those standards and workplace conditions are like. So just, yeah, I can't even imagine, and especially in these non-union food processing or manufacturing facilities. You know, we take for granted uh, that when you're in a union environment, specifically in the private sector, a lot of the medical plans are Taft-Hartley multi-employer. They're, they're management and labor. But it's the only medical insurance where you have workers participating in the design of the medical plans that they work under. Mm-hmm. That's quite a nice thing to be able to mm-hmm. say, yeah, we think it should be more comprehensive in the pharmaceutical coverage, or we should not have pre-existing condition exemptions. And mm-hmm. so there's a number of things that um, labor having a voice in your workplace, it extends to your quality of life and your benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it definitely varies from the private sector to the public sector, but uh, but the the brilliance of employer and worker joint management of different benefits uh, that are provided by the employer and unionized industries is um, a huge selling point for working people, right? So, um, so over the past several sessions, um, UFCW, we're going to pivot a little bit and talk about the legislative process because there's so much exciting stuff to talk about. UFCW's legislative program 
has had some really incredible successes for working people, for low-wage workers in particular. And so, you know, Jeff, you mentioned some of these things, but what are some of the factors in the broader economy that have really led your union to prioritize using policy and legislation to really improve the lives of not just your own members, but all workers in the types of industries you work within? You know, the largest part of the American economy is the service sector economy, and retail is the bulk of that. 40% of the service sector is in retail, mm -hmm. and it's very competitive, cutthroat. You see it on the ads. Uh, every Wednesday, uh, the ads come out, and employers, different companies are trying to kill each other to get your dollar. Well, the net effect is it puts downward pressure on us, and so it's a competitive disadvantage if you have bad actors out there paying less benefits, less wages in the community. And as a consequence, good actors want to be competitive, and so we see downward pressures uh, in bargaining. We have decided that we have to look to government, to governance, to public policy, to improve the lives of people in our industries. And we were very successful uh, in being the fourth city, major city in America, Portland, enacting a sick day law. Uh, later on, Eugene passed even a more comprehensive law, and then followed by the state passing uh, a statewide law that provided sick pay for 800,000 Oregonians. So mm -hmm. while we spearheaded that from the labor movement side, uh, we found that, true to the union mission, we're improving the lives of all Oregonians, mm -hmm. Uh, no matter who they are, to have this one first-time benefit. When I have 25,000 members primarily in retail, 800,000 people tells me I'm helping beyond our uh, scope. Mm -hmm. We moved into Fair Work Week uh, to provide that you no longer have to wait three days prior to your shift to figure out if you're working. Uh, right now it's uh, one week notice. Mm -hmm. In another year or so, it's going to be two weeks notice. And it provides uh, some penalties if the employers game that calendar. Exactly. Uh, but it gives you the ability to take your kid to a doctor's appointment, to go to school with your kids, to make the, the things that we take for granted uh, that a lot of retail workers do not enjoy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I want to just um, touch on one of the things that you just said about looking to government and elected leaders to improve standards in your industry. And, you know, this notion, I think a lot about this, the notion of the, uh, you know, legislatures being the community bargaining table in a lot of ways. And it's, you know, and I think, unfortunately, it's a symptom, this, this movement in the labor, you know, in the labor community to look to elected leaders to require employers to offer certain types of benefits. Unfortunately, it's, it's a symptom of the broader economy and the fact that employers aren't doing this work do, providing these types of benefits, providing these types of standards on their own, right? Well, large employers used to be, in small communities, the big player. But today, those employers do not have the commitment to those communities. And we've seen this in the timber industry, town after town, that was being devastated when mills were shutting down. Uh, consolidation, they're moving on uh, to other, to other uh, entities. So what we've seen is a downward pressure where the middle class has shrunk significantly. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a point where you say, well, if we're going to continue down this path, 
there should be a, a minimum standard that we accept as Oregonians what society should look like. Mm-hmm. Sick days was uh, one that was just like a wildfire in our union when we said we're going to go after first day sick leave. We're going to push it statewide. Uh, we had over uh, 7,000 members sign up to our uh, political action uh, fund uh, donating a dollar a week. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it's really fueled by the members that are saying, yes, let's do this work. Let's, I mean, you can't get a better vote of confidence than the participation of voluntary contributions to that fund. Amen, brother. Um, and one of the things I was just having a conversation just, uh, with a group of apprentices in the construction trades, uh, just last Friday. And, uh, you know, when I, when I go and give presentations to these new, young, not all, not always young, but, but often young folks that are three, four years into their construction apprenticeship program. Um, you know, I, I sort of always am a little bit of a provocateur and I, I'm, I, I raise minimum wage, for example, as you know, uh, and I asked kind of the question, like, why, the, why do you think the labor movement really prioritizes an issue like the minimum wage or like sick days or like retirement security or like fair work week? What, you know, why do you think the labor movement leads on these types of issues? Um, and it's always a lively conversation because I think the corporate agenda likes you to believe one thing, uh, but we know in the labor movement and in the working class struggle that um, you know li- lifting all boats is a good thing, and it actually um, is strategically helpful for collective bargaining. But it's also the right thing to do, and it's the only way to ensure that there's some fairness and some equity and some some power uh, for working people in the economy. So. Yeah, I mean. We're, we're looking for self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. I mean, a job should be able to make you self-sufficient, not mm-hmm. require to have government assistance. But too many companies in this downward spiral are using the government services as a means to subsidize their profits. Mm-hmm. Amen. And I know we're going to come back to that exact issue here in just a sec. But um, I don't want to leave Fair Work Week yet. Um, I want to come back to Fair Work Week if that's okay. Sure. You know, Fair Work Week was a groundbreaking nation-leading effort uh, that – uh, you just mentioned and was a was a recent win for your union, your members, um, as again a first in the nation's statewide fair scheduling law. Um, and you mentioned a little bit about the challenging environment for uh, workers that are always on call or seemingly on call and really don't have any stability, a way to plan for their lives, to plan for their families. Um, and this isn't about leisure. This is just about survival, um, the, 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 the needs yeah. for these types of workers, right? So um, maybe share a little bit more about Fair Work Week. And, uh, you know, I, I did make a, make a note about this because you said this a second ago. Um, you know, the labor movement talks a lot about organizing opportunities and using issues or campaigns to really mobilize members, right, to get members to really buy into things. So maybe if you could just share a little bit more about the, what was going on internally with that campaign, especially coming off the heels of sick days, it's such a big win. Coming off the sick days, Fair Work Week became a natural for us. We we said, what do you think about uh, a law that would uh, provide some family stability? Uh, the interesting thing is we did a first-class poll on Oregonians' values around Fair Work Week, and this shot through the moon. I mean, we were saying uh, bipartisan support, uh, completely across all geographic areas, economic, social economic uh, areas in the state. Uh, it became so popular among both political parties that ultimately the bill became a bipartisan legislation, both in the Senate and in, in the House. Mm-hmm. But the, the dynamics around it 
uh, you had very powerful uh, entities lobbying against us. And it just took a lot of persuasive uh, storytelling uh, and collecting those stories and bringing people to the legislature. Mm -hmm. We've had hundreds of our members wearing our gold shirts in the Capitol. Um, it, it just took a lot to do it, but it was the first in the country. And once you break the mold, there's five other states now trying to emulate what mm -hmm. we did here in Oregon. Mm -hmm. We're very proud of the law, but you can always expand who it covers. So mm -hmm. the law covers basically large retailers, large uh, restaurants, large hotels. Uh, but we think it should include someday call centers and other uh, enterprises that we would call this, uh, bad actors in terms of trying to ca have casual labor mm -hmm. just on call. Mm -hmm. So we went from a full-time society in the 60s to a part-time society through the 90s. And today it was, it, it's like just in time, uh, labor. Mm -hmm. And the, the environment for organizing today around these victories is so significant. Uh, we are now organizing new workers um, uh, into, into our union, cannabis workers. We have our first contract. It's exciting. Uh, so with, that the labor with, a, with a pension and health insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, and we already know that we have two, three more employers that will be organizing in that sector. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of excitement going on in terms of organizing because I think when you hit the bottom, and that was that uh, 2008 stock market crash and the recession that followed, I think people have woke up that there's some instability out there, and we need mm -hmm. to provide those type of stabilities. And the labor movement really is the only way to do that for workers. Absolutely. And one it's one of the things that we talk a lot about, we all talk a lot about, which is, you know, we've seen collective action on the rise. We've seen teacher walkouts. In conservative southern states, we've seen and 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 winning, I might add, we've seen uh, all kinds of uh, different sectors of the economy where workers are fed up and looking for a solution, and they're joining unions to 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 do exactly what you just mentioned. Um, you know, union favorability is at a decade or fifteen year high right now uh, in terms of yeah. both people that and, the, and their views on unions and their interest in joining one if they had the choice. And so, I think it's important for the labor movement to provide opportunities. For yeah, any worker I mean, to join the union. In the Midwest, where there was rampant uh, anti-union legislation by uh, conservative governors, we just seen uh, Missouri rebuff that and recall it and took right to work and threw it out into the in the stack. So yeah. it's it's encouraging that people are starting to wake up and fight back. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I know... Um, Oregon had a had a role in that victory, that victory for working people in Missouri. UFCW sent a lot of folks there in person. We had folks uh, here in Oregon texting. We actually sent about 10 to, I think maybe even closer to 20% of all of the texts into Missouri voters were coming from Oregon, which was pretty cool. So lots of... Which I think is really quite laudable. The Oregon labor movement stepped up mm -hmm. and became very supportive of not just that, but other races. Like in Arizona, when the special Senate or the Senate election pickup in Arizona this last fall, mm -hmm. a lot of Oregonians were down there helping make that happen. Exactly. So labor, labor's not only on the front line, it's leading. Yep, absolutely. So um, we've got about five to seven more minutes, and I just wanted to make sure we spent some time talking about the legislature that's uh, in front of us. The Oregon legislature here in our backyard, right here in Salem, 
um, kicked off last Tuesday, and uh, and I know there's a lot of expectations and excitement coming off of the big wins for working people uh, on election night in 2018 in November. Um, but just out of curiosity, what's one of the most exciting things for you, Jeff, uh, about the 2019 session? Well, the idea that you have two-thirds majorities doesn't guarantee, but it certainly gives you a hope that we are able to correct some of the funding levels of health care that's necessary for Oregonians to all have insurance. So I'm hopeful that we'll close that financial gap that they estimate is there, uh, that we'll fund schools properly. Um, you know, my union has a couple priority bills. Uh, one is called the Oregon Corporate Accountability Act. That's the ability for where private sector employees today have been signing and waving away their right to a private right of action to sue an employer if they violate some laws. Mm -hmm. And so it goes into a forced arbitration system. We want to create, and for simplicity, I call it a public right of action. The state would, uh, like a sheriff, deputize a individual who has a complaint that's valid. The complaint would be owned by the state, but they would be able to litigate that, and if it was found to be true, then they would be able to um, have the state receive the fines that would normally uh, not be imposed by inaction or uh, the locked up because there's all these private non-disclosure forums. Mm -hmm. So we call it simply, we want to make a public sheriff, deputizes an individual, that individual can move a class action suit to find out if there's sexual harassment that's pervasive, that's being covered up by non-disclosure forms, but the state has the ability already in its fines and systems to be able to uh, com bring complaint against that uh, employer prospectively. So um, it's receiving pretty good bipartisan support so far in the House and the Senate, and we have high hopes that we're going to be able to get that bill passed. That's great. Uh, the the one that I think is kind of exciting for me I, it is the Oregon Taxpayer Reimbursement Act. It simply says we have some bad actors out there that are large employers, a hundred or more, uh, in some of the same industries I mentioned earlier, that use government health care, government uh, SNAP benefits, food stamps, WIC, uh, Women, Infant, and Children Nutrition Program funding, uh, as a means to subsidize their profits by not offering competitive benefits to their employees. That means the state picks it up. And um, some financial uh, magazines say that the cost shifting in one company is over $6 billion a year to the taxpayers. Uh, we think here in Oregon, if it's deemed they're not providing enough hours to have somebody earning self-sufficiency, that employer should probably pay a payroll tax back to the state to reimburse the state for those uh, expenses. Mm -hmm. uh, we should not be socializing their profits. Uh, that Absolutely. should not be the model that we all work in Absolutely. under. So just out of curiosity, and we'll um, talk a little bit about the broader labor agenda, and you alluded to some of those priorities already, which I think are widely shared. Uh, but what what about these two issues that I think are really righteous, exciting campaigns? Um, where did these come from in you know in the in the UFCW planning for the 2019 legislature off of the 
off of the heels of those big, those other big wins. These are really exciting, really important um, trends to address in the economy and the uh, different industries. But yeah, where, well, like, how, how, how did this factor? You know, in? I mentioned that there's a, a competitive disadvantage for union employers when the non-union employers might have less benefits and they might be encouraging. One employer um, by OPB did a story on it in uh, Pendleton a number of years ago said when they hired an employee, they filled out the W-2 or W-4 form at 99 and gave them the Oregon health plan application as if that's their health care. And, and that was really indicative of what the problem was. And so we thought we need to bring some accountability because our employers uh, complain that there's a competitive disadvantage in the marketplace. Well, we think it's time to reimburse the state and make self-sufficiency a requirement. You should, if you're going to hire an Oregonian, you should provide him the means for self-sufficiency, the dignity. Work is dignity, but the means for them to make an, a, a, a way of life. Uh, it shouldn't be one where they have to work multiple jobs. I mean, that should not be the Oregon aspirational goal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, we don't have time to go deeply into the broad agenda that the Oregon AFL-CIO and the labor movement has. But, um, you know, I think it probably goes without saying, um, you know, our economy, despite economic growth and records being broken, is still not being felt. That growth is still not being felt by working people often. You go, you go 30 miles off of I-5 either direction and get into eastern and southern Oregon, and the, the effects of the timber industry are still mm -hmm. felt in terms of uh, schools can't pass uh, bonds. Um, there's not a lot of money in the communities, and and so there's a spiral down in, in rural Oregon. And anything I can do to help uh, bring a level of benefits to people wherever they live in the state, mm -hmm. I think we have an obligation to try to do that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that solidarity. It's a guiding value of the labor movement and uh, one that uh, we couldn't do alone, right? So thank you. Um, so uh, just to wrap things up, I wanted to just uh, popcorn style ask you a couple questions. Okay. Uh, so uh, what is one thing, one, one uh, kind of snippet of, the, uh, of something that listeners might not know about, um, about UFCW members that might find interesting that you haven't already mentioned? Well, I mean, we're quite a... A lot of people working in different yeah. industries. You might not know that uh, we have public sector employees in our membership. We have public sector hospitals uh, that we represent employees, all but the uh, nurses, mm -hmm. down in Coos Bay, North Bend, and Lower Umpqua, and uh, Reedsport. Uh, they might not know that we have uh, labor law firms downtown Portland where they, even the partners are members of the union. That's pretty cool. Um, we're a very diverse group. We represent pharmacists mm -hmm. to fish packers. Nice. And it's a very um, challenging but uh, great group. There's 50-some employees, and they all are motivated to work in a team environment to build this, the labor movement. Mm -hmm. we're, we are committed to the greater labor movement. Uh, and more and more, I mean, there's all kinds of tools of the trade, who would know that I, I started a career sorting bottles mm -hmm. that would lead to where I'm the secretary treasurer of a union. Yeah. And it shows you that there's upward mobility in the labor organizations, and it's very encouraging. Absolutely. So uh, another question, what's one thing that gives you hope for working people despite these challenges that the economy's thrown at them? 
I, I actually am an optimist. I've learned that I have to be patient, but I'm an optimist. I mean, I started working in universal healthcare back in the mid eighties. And today you see the ACA. It, I don't believe it's perfect, but it's a step toward, uh, where today, uh, all but 6% of Oregonians are not covered by insurance. That compares to Texas where 25% of their population have no insurance. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot to continue to strive for, but I see uh, significant gains in universal access and the quality of care uh, being expansive, public education growing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I'm an optimist. I believe we've gone through the 2008 recession stock market crash, um, and I compare that to the 1930s. I actually think... We're at the point of where the Wagner Act passed in 1935. I, I think the middle class opportunities are going to be great. There's millions of jobs that are going to be needed in the future. Uh, we need to quit bashing immigrants, whether they're legal or otherwise, because we're going to need them for our team, for our economy, and for our society. Um, the replacement workforce is not sufficient to maintain with the baby boom retiring. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, one quick final thought for listeners. Anything, anything else you'd like to, like to leave folks with as we sort of wrap up this month's episode? Well, if, if this audience is beyond the labor movement itself, it, it really speaks that you should get a union. You need to call whatever union. Uh, I mean, there's wonderful unions in the public sector and the private sector, the building trades. Uh, labor organizing is first and foremost. And Frankly, I would have people call the AFL-CIO to ask what union is appropriate for me in the workplace because you guys are really good at directing them to the right unions. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Well, it's been an honor to be here with you. It's been a fun conversation. Uh, And thanks for joining uh, us today. Uh, This is always exciting for me to sort of spotlight an affiliate that's doing really good work. So thanks, Jeff, for being here. Um, So you've been listening to The Voice of Oregon's Workers. Please share, like online, and spread the word about this project. And we'll continue to bring you relevant, interesting content about issues impacting working class Oregonians. We'll catch you next month.